0: Good morning Sherwood Oaks. I am in the amazing city of Ephesus. You may have read Paul's letter to the Ephesians and it's the people that lived here that he wrote to. I tell you, I've walked around this place and I'm absolutely amazed at the splendor of it and what is exposed now through archaeology is about 10 percent of the original city. I can't imagine that the Ephesians didn't think of themselves pretty highly which makes me read first and second and the third chapter of Ephesians in that light. Paul reminding the Ephesians that yeah they're important but don't forget there's other people that God loves and they are part of a larger family. This morning I'm missing my family but I know that you are going to love hearing from Rob this morning. So would you welcome him this morning to Sherwood Oaks? Well, Tim gets to uh, stand in Ephesus and talk about chapters 1, 2, and 3 in Ephesus. And all I get to do is to read a couple verses out of Ephesians chapter 4 that uh, I would gladly trade places with him. We're glad that you are here to uh, uh, worship. Especially glad to uh, recognize our fathers. And uh, told the uh, first service that they've done a study and they found out that Parentry is hereditary. If your parents didn't have any children, you won't either. Um, that's my dad joke and that's the best that I can fit in. Uh, let's pause with the word of prayer. Father, we would ask, not only that you would open the eyes of our heart, but that you would give us understanding to one of the greatest truths we find in your word as we look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1 this day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Brother and sister, they were spending uh, a week on the farm with grandma and grandpa. And as customary, uh, after the meals, they would each have to take turns helping clean off the table, clean up the kitchen, put things away. And after about uh, two days into the process, uh, the boy, he was out on the farm and little farm pond. On the far side of the pond is a, a goose. It's his grandmother's favorite goose. And so he's looking and saying, well, I wonder if I could throw a rock all the way over there. I wonder how close I could get to it. Picks up a rock, throws it, and to his utter amazement, he hits the goose, kills it. As the story goes, he uh, is feeling terrible, uh, knows how much that his grandmother adores that goose and what's going to be her reaction when she finds out. That evening at mealtime, it's uh, time to start cleaning up the table, and grandmother looks at the the girl and said, well, it's your turn tonight, dear. And uh, she said, well, yeah, I know it's my turn, but my brother, he said that uh, he would be more than happy to take my turn tonight. And she leans over and says, remember the goose. So he goes ahead and accepts the responsibility of the evening. And so that scenario played out for two, three, four meals. And the uh, brother was getting kind of tired of it. So finally, he went to his grandmother and said, Grandma, I've, I've got something terrible to, to tell you. It was an accident. I didn't mean to do it, but I threw a rock uh, just seeing how close I could come to your goose. And I hit it, and I killed it. I hit it. Um, and uh, I, I'm sorry, I know how much you, you love that goose. Grandmother looked at him and said, Well, I am, uh, was wondering how long it was going to take you to say something about it. I saw what happened. And I wondered how long you're going to let your sister hold that over your head and control and manipulate you. He was bound tight by what he had done, the sorrow of it, but the guilt of it as well. His great fear was being found out and his sister used that to control him by hiding what was done. We look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1 today and I wonder how much fear do we carry trying to keep hidden the things that may shame us Guilt us, bind us, hold us captive. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, one of the most powerful verses in the New Testament, one of the most powerful chapters in the New Testament. It's lesson 42 or 41 out of our Core 52 book, if you're working your way through the 52 weeks of studying different passages of God's scripture. And today it's on freedom. How can we find freedom? How can we find release from fear and guilt and shame? The verse says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Very simple statement. But such depth, such import such an impact that it makes in our life, in the lives of those around us. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 9 through 24, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And he's talking about the contrast between those who are walking in Christ and those who are apart from Christ. Verse 19, he says, of them having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life Put off the old self. Put that in bold letters and underlined it. To put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. There's a war that's always going on in my body with all of the desires that that is, is the flesh tries to uh, fulfill. But he said uh, in verse 23 to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Where it talks about being made new in the attitudes of your mind. There's an important battle that takes place in the space of about 10 to 12 inches and it's, it's what goes on between our two ears. It is a mental readjustment, a mental conflict Next week, as we get into uh, chapter 42, where we talk about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you'll have opportunity to look at this idea that Paul is introducing here, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind, to put on the new self. And when he uses the idea created, creation is not reworking something that was old, it's starting something new. And so God, as He enters into a, we enter into a relationship with Him, there's a creation process that takes place. A new creature is being formed. It's not who I was, but it is who I am now. now I think the, the statement is true when one person said, you cannot consistently perform in a manner that is inconsistent with the way that you see yourself. We always have ideas of self-talk and uh, the impressions that others try and build into us of their impressions of us. When Viktor Srebronikov was 15, his teacher told him that he would never finish school and what he ought to do is just drop out of school and learn a trade. So Victor took the advice of the teacher, and for 17 years, he was an itinerant just doing a variety of odd jobs as he moved from place to place. An evaluation when he was 32 years old uh, really changed things. He had been told that he was never going to measure up, and for 17 years, he acted like the dunce that they said he was going to be. But in the evaluation that he took, it was revealed that he had an IQ of hundred and sixty-one. Guess what? He started acting like a genius. From that time on, he wrote books. He secured a number of patents. He became a successful businessman. One of the greatest significant things that, that he looked at was He had dropped out of school, but then he is elected as chairman of the International Mensa Society. The Mensa Society, if you know anything about it, it has one requirement for membership, and that is that you have an IQ of 140 or higher. He accomplished that. What made the difference in his life? Did all of a sudden he just turn smart at age 32? I think what changed? was the way He saw Himself. I wonder how many of us in our Christian life or just in in the life that we live are like Victor. We are living far beneath our potential and our privilege that we have because we believe others what others are saying about us, what Satan is accusing us of, all of that self-talk that goes goes on in the mind. Do we really believe it? When maybe what we need to do is rather than listening to what others are saying, we should listen to what God has said about who we are. The good news in this passage of Scripture is great news, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, here's a contrast of two different laws. There's the law of the Spirit that is working in our spiritual being, but there's also a law of sin and death that is taking place in the body, a body that is slowly dying and being put away so that we can put on Jesus Christ in His fullness. And the good news is when it says, there is therefore now, doesn't mean it's going to be next week. It's going to be next year. Next election. Next lifetime. When it says now, it means now. Today. And so, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter what you did last night. Doesn't matter what you did last week no matter how you felt when you woke up this morning, no matter what anyone else thinks or says about you. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, there is no condemnation. That's good news. Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or you become a Christian today, that's going to be true. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Imagine yourself in the courtroom, you're standing before the judge and the judge takes the note from the jury where the, and begins to read, we the jury find the defendant, or maybe it's just the judge himself speaking from the bench where the, uh, the judge is saying, I find the defendant And the next words that come out of His mouth are words that's going to impact and influence your life for possibly years to come, maybe even for the rest of your life. And so when the the verdict comes down, guilty, transgressor, lawbreaker, one needing punished, and the law will exact its revenge, and we will have to bear the weight of the consequence of our sin. And as you look and you're starting to make your way to uh, the prison that's going to be a, a, a dark day in your life, all of a sudden the petition comes in from the governor, the president, a pardon. You're going to be declared as if you were not guilty. When you've lost all hope and this amazing thing happens, you're granted a reprieve. That's one of the greatest pronouncements in Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation, not guilty. That changes everything. Cases dismissed, you're free. That's why a lot of Bible scholars look and say that this is one of the best passages of Scripture in all of the New Testament. You look at this and say, the the struggle, we know the struggle's real. Now, to understand the importance of Romans chapter 8, we need to look at the word, therefore, and any uh, commentator will tell you that you come into the, the Scripture and you find the word, therefore, that what you have to do is look why it's therefore. Because it's going to refer back to what was previously said. And you look in chapter 7 where Paul talks about we're in the midst of this struggle, that there is a war going on within our flesh, between our flesh and the Spirit. And he said in chapters, well, the way it states it, in chapter Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's a victorious verse, but it's broken up by a chapter uh, section. That when the Bible was written, it wasn't written in chapters and verses. That was put in place so that we could find our reference points a lot easier. But it's really meant to read through Romans chapter 7 flowing into chapter 8. So chapter 8 goes and says, In light of everything that was said in chapter 7, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit has set me free from the law of sin and death. So what the law... It had certain abilities that it could show me how I was wrong. But it could never help me right that wrong. Illustration of the uh, husband and wife. that The husband did all the, uh, earning all of the wages of the family. And the wife finally said, well, I've got some time. Why don't you let me work and provide some income for our family as well? He said, well, I re- I really, uh, would rather that you didn't, but finally she says, I'll tell you what, everything that I make, I will bring it home, give it to you, and you can put it in to use for the family as you see fit. So that happens for uh, some time, and at some point she's looking and saying, well, you know, I do all of this work and I have nothing to show for it on my very own. So maybe I'm I'm gonna keep out $5, I'm gonna keep out $10 just for myself. And she gives everything else to him. Now, the agreement was everything she made, she was going to give, turn it in for the family good. So, when the husband finds out about it, he's rather uh, disappointed and said, We had an agreement. She says, Well, I know I violated that, but I'll tell you what, I'm sorry and I'll make it up to you. I'll work extra hard and earn more to replace what I did. See the fallacy of that? Everything that she's already agreed that everything that she makes is going to go in. So she's not going to be able to work a little extra to make it a little bit more. What I'm trying to get you to see is this idea of performance. We tell God, yes, I know I've sinned, and I know that you've forgiven me, but when I mess up, then I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work a little extra on becoming more like you." Well, we're already supposed to be that. And so, it's, if you are categorized as a lawbreaker, the law says there's nothing you can do except pay the penalty of that transgression. You can't work to undo having broken the law. You're in a new category. And whether it is uh, Looking at lying or selfishness, destructive anger, pride, arrogance, guilty of hurtful words or prideful words, unfa- unfaithful acts, it could be, The list could go on and on uh, of things, that once we have become the lawbreaker, there is no recourse that we can do to unravel what has happened. And that's the struggle that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 15 through 19, he says, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. It points out where I'm wrong. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. There's nothing that, that I can be good enough for God to love me more than he already loves me. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, it's what I keep on doing. Paul says, even though I know what I ought to do, my flesh is constantly working, saying, you don't have to pay any attention to that. You go ahead and do what you want to do. You can be free that way. And what we find out is we are bound. And then we have to try and hide from God. How many of you can identify with that? See, that's Paul's story. That's my story. I think it's your story. We all realize that this struggle, it's real. We see it very early in, in children where you tell them something and what you tell them, it seems like they're going to do the very opposite thing. When Bethany, our oldest daughter, was little, we had a large coffee table that uh, was in the living room and we always had a candy dish full of candy uh, sitting on the, on, the, on the coffee table and every once in a while, she would reach her hand over towards the coffee, uh, the candy dish, and we would just tap her hand and say no. And after doing that several times, one day, Bethany, she reached for the candy dish. She took her hand, tapped it, said no, then went ahead and got the candy. I mean, a deliberate disobey. But that's the way our flesh works. If we're told Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan looks and says, look at that fruit. Doesn't that look good? Why do you think God's keeping that from you? He just gets our eyes and our heart and our flesh focusing on something that we shouldn't. And then we find it. the focus becomes so great that we yield. I've been going to Mayo Clinic for, I don't know, 20-some, 30 years with medical issues and, and it doesn't matter if it was the first time, the 10th time, or the 20th time. When I get those instructions from Mayo Clinic about my upcoming visit, it will say, now, this is the diet that you need to follow. These are the things, uh, preparations that you need to do. And these are the foods you can't eat until this time, and then you can't eat anything. These are the things that you can drink until this time, and then you can't. And as soon as I hear that, I'm always thinking about, boy, wouldn't it be nice to be able to go to Cracker Barrel? Wouldn't it be nice to go to Red Lobster, all the shrimp that you can eat? And it, it just, that, that restriction awakens a, a desire in me. And the flesh just keeps saying, you got to pursue this desire. you got to satisfy it. We are going to have that struggle until we find ourselves in the very presence of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18 says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's not a reworking of the old. It's a beginning with a fresh start of something new, a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. Now, Paul is telling us we have to make a mind shift change. Not to listen to the way that others describe us or what they say about us or what they think about us, but we need to look at what God says about us and what God thinks of us. Old things are gone. New things have come. All of a sudden, God's Spirit is placed within me and He is going to be creating His godliness, His holiness from the inside out, not from the outside in. So my transformation, it's not going to be because of my effort. It's because of me getting out of the way and letting the Spirit do the planting and the nurturing and the harvesting that's going to produce righteousness and holiness in me. But most of the time, our lives are governed by what's happening on the outside, not what's on the inside. Some truths about our identity in Christ. We have a new position. and We want to look at that, the difference between our position in Christ and our condition in Christ. We have a new position. It is mentioned over 150 times in the New Testament that we are in Christ, we are with Christ in Him. So we have this new position and we have new possessions, some spiritual resources that we didn't have before. Paul, in his letters to the churches, he talks about that there is a natural man who goes about living life just under his own power. And he said that there's also a spiritual man who goes around living his life under God's power and the Spirit's leading. But he says there's another man in the middle and it's the carnal man. And He's trying to do spiritual things in a fleshly way. Still trying to do His performance rather than letting the Spirit perform within us. In verse 18, we have a new potential. He has given us a ministry of reconciliation to the world. So three things I want to do is I want to renew my perspective, I want to release my past, and I want to remember my purpose. The good news is our struggle, it's real, but it is without condemnation. God's love for you is not threatened by the struggle. Even though we keep on sinning, though we don't want to, through it, though it feels like sometimes we just can't help ourselves, our bodies seem like they're just wired for sin. Thanks be to Jesus that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ not guilty, cleared of all the charges. It's not because you are innocent. It's not because I am innocent. It's not because you didn't do it or I didn't do it. No condemnation doesn't mean that there's no cause for condemnation. It is true that there is cause for condemnation, but there is no condemnation, not because I'm innocent, it's because Jesus is innocent. It's because of what He has done on the cross for you and for me. He was convicted in your place, He paid your penalty. The cross is a problem fit for God. God is going to be holy and God is going to be just. God is going to be loving as well as just. So you look and say, well, if God loves us, then why doesn't He just forgive everything? Well, that's not true to His holy nature. So what He's going to have to do is, there's going to have to be a punishment for sin. Sin's debt has to be paid. But I'm not the one that has to pay it. As a matter of fact, there is nothing I can do that would amount to be enough to pay the debt of my sin. The only way it can be done is for Christ to pay it for us. And so with, with that cross of Christ, God is true to His holy, just nature, but also His loving nature. Whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The thing that we want you to keep in mind is there's two things. There is our position in Christ, and there is our condition in Christ. A position is is like a state we're given. As soon as I become a Christian, I'm given a status of righteous, clean, declared a saint, not based on anything I have done, based solely on what Christ has done. And so that is a place, and it comes as a gift. It's not some reward. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. And it's going to be unchanging, and we're all going to find the same thing to be true. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we understand that being in Christ, that is a position that I'm given but it's also a condition or a process. My condition doesn't fully match up to what I have been given by God. Paul writes to the church at Philippi and says, it's a journey, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It's going to be a work that is being done. Train yourself to be godly for physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. That's what Paul told Timothy. And it's going to be a continual process of change, of growth, and development. Although I'm given an innocent status, living up to that state is a process. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, we are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. There's a passage of Scripture that I really love, and it's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, that really reflects this idea of position and condition in Christ. By one sacrifice, He made perfect. That means it's complete. That state is fulfilled. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's the process. It's amazing to think that over 150 times in the New Testament, God refers to us in our new identity. It's in Him, with Him, in Christ, everywhere. So I would encourage you this week to maybe pull out your concordance and look up some of the passages where it's talking about the state that we have been given of no condemnation in Jesus Christ. You see, grace is not something you earn, something that you've been given. And my position is in Christ, and when God looks at me, He sees Christ. He doesn't see me with all of my imperfections that are still being matured and grown and transformed. That's the process. He just looks and sees Christ. Several months ago, we were down in, in Disney World, and I snapped a picture. A kid had one of these balloons. You see them all over the place at Disney World. A balloon in a balloon. And uh, to me, that's, it, it's just a representation of my position in Christ. Christ fulfills everything around me, and it is my safety zone, but inside I don't fill out the fullness of Christ. That's still being grown and developed, so it's the balloon inside of a balloon. One of my family friends, Zeno Ohio, had a man that uh, loved dearly. He was a good man. He'd, just hesitated and balked about accepting Christ. Every time there'd be a revival, speaker would come out and they would sit down and they would talk with him and he would just say, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. There's still some things I got to clean up in my life. Junior high Sunday school teacher went out, talked to him one day, Wilma Hurley, one of the most godly ladies I've ever met. She sat down with Paul and said, Paul, what? What's holding you back? He said, well, there's some things in my life that that I I need to change and uh, I'm working on and trying to grow. She said, God doesn't want you to wait till you fix everything. Because if you fix everything, when you come to him, you're going to come to him in pride, not humility. You're going to say, look at what I did instead of look at what God did. You see, we get into a relationship with Christ, not by trying, but by trusting. Grace, it's not a reward, it is a gift. And we understand that when we become a Christian, but what about the Christian who sins? It's still gonna be true. We grow in our relationship with Christ. Not by trying, but by trusting. Faith's foundations, God's grace is available because it's based on Jesus' performance, not mine. God does not love me and save me for what I can do for Him. I need to die to my old life, to the old law and stop relating to God on that basis. You see, grace accepts me just as I am. And then it enables me to live above my own ability. And I think our service on behalf of God is going to be greater under grace because of gratitude, not guilt being the motivation. All I have to do to receive grace and grow in grace is come in humility. I need to ask for grace. Let me mention a couple things that are uh, what no condemnation means for you. It means there's no rejection. You're still a child of God, even though you struggle with sin, even though you blow it far more times than you want to admit. Jesus says, you are my brother, you are my sister. God says, you are my child and I love you. God isn't hoping for you to make one more mistake so he can kick you to the curb. He wants to love you through the struggle. He wants to help you get beyond it. He wants you to overcome it. That's why He gives His Spirit to strive with us in the process, in the struggle. What He promised is He would help us through the struggle. Remember the story of Jesus and the—I gave about the prodigal son? father had a selfish son, he resented being at home, he resents the authority of being home, and under the authority of the father, he wishes he didn't have to work in his dad's business, ask for his share of the inheritance so he could just go his own way. Basically what he's asking or saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have the benefits of your life and I could go on living mine. So the father gives him his portion of the estate. And off he goes, Uh, if we want to make it contemporary, he he heads off to Vegas. He's the hottest young bachelor in the city, easy access to all the hottest clubs. Uh, Then the money runs out, then the girls run out, the cars get repossessed, backstage doors are suddenly closing in his face. He's persona non grata. And so gone is the fine foods and wine, Can't even afford the the cheap stuff, no room service. Pretty soon, he can't even afford a place to live. Finds himself working at a minimum wage pig farm out in the desert. Here's a Jewish guy working with the most detestable animal to a Jew, the pigs. And not only is he caring for them, but he's gotten to such a place in his life that he sees the food that the pigs are eating and he has nothing. So when nobody's looking, he, he starts eating what the pigs are eating. And scripture says, the way Jesus told the parable is, he came to himself. That he assessed everything and said, you know, even the servants in my father's house live better than this. I've really messed up. I'm going to go back, I'm going to apologize, say, I know what I did was wrong. I know I'm not entitled to anything, but if you could just hire me, give me a menial job. Something that I can have some sense of security, some sense of hope. And so as he makes his way back, he's been thinking of his apology. And as he's getting close, what the son doesn't realize, every morning, every evening, The father's looking lovingly down the the driveway, wondering if he will ever see a familiar figure, figure. And then one evening, he looks and hears a person with shoulders slumped over and ragged clothes, looking dirty, matted hair. And when the father sees him, the only time in scripture he gets the impression of God running. He runs to the son. And the son begins his apology, and the father says, bring a robe, bring a ring, kill the fatted calf. My son that was dead, he is alive. That was scandalous that the father would give something that was so unmerited to, so, so, to one who was so undeserving but he did it because he loved he loved his son what does god say to you first john chapter 4 verse 8 says god is love he loved the world enough loved you enough, loved me enough to give His Son that could believe in Him and have eternal life. Jesus loved you enough to come to earth, to pay the price for your sin. He knew before He ever went to the cross. He knew before He ever entered this world all the horrible, awful things that would be possible for us to do. But guess what? He came anyway. He died anyway. He loved anyway. God hates sin. He will judge sin. But all of that anger, all of that judgment against sin was poured out on Jesus. All the sin that Jesus carried to the cross. When you come to Jesus, your sins are forgiven because the penalty's paid. You're given a clean status. There's nothing for God to be mad about. He's already exhausted his anger and his disappointment when he places on Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says, When we were dead in our sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge for our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us he has taken it away nailing it to the cross romans chapter 8 verse 1. it is a very powerful simple statement to make but did you get all of that He's forgiven your sins, all of them. How many? All that was, even all the ones that is yet to be. Because my life in Christ is not something that I will ever earn. It is something that I will simply rejoice because it was given as a gift from a loving Father. Can we affirm one thing as a body this morning? God is not angry with me. God is not angry with me. No matter how much the devil whispers in your ear, saying guilty, guilty, guilty. Believe God's word when it says there is now, now, today, not tomorrow, not next week, not yesterday, not last week, now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, your grace, so amazing, so powerful, so life-changing. Be with us as we come to, your, to you through your Son, Jesus Christ as we grow in his likeness as the spirit leads and works within us thank you for your love it's in christ's name we pray amen we're going to sing a song here in a minute but before that we're going to pass our emblems during our time of communion and there is a, a passage of scripture want to wrap things up with. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we take the emblems of hand, think of the price God willingly offered, a gift that is given, that is never earned, God's grace.